You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jeff Wald. He is an entrepreneur. He's also an author. He's also a speaker. We're going to talk to him a little bit about the work that he's done, the lessons he's learned, and uh, really some interesting ideas, some some research he's done, and really some some thinking he's done around where we are uh, as a society, as uh, industry, and kind of the future of work and the future of services. And I'm excited for this because I think as, as, as many people have kind of painted a potential somewhat dystopic future of, of technology of the future. I think there's a, some really interesting kind of insights there. And Jeff has certainly written about them and has some ideas on, on why that's not necessarily the case or why there, there is, there is a, a bright future for every company, but including service companies. And I'm excited to talk about that and uh, hear Jeff's ideas and, and have a really interesting, fun conversation. So with that, Jeff, welcome to the program. Oh my God! So excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for thank you for being on. Before we kind of dig into your thoughts on work and, and have this discussion, let's get a little bit of background and understand uh, your journey. I mean, you've you've been an entrepreneur several times. You've had some interesting experiences, both successes and failures, and I, and I know that they both have lessons to be learned. But yeah, tell us a little bit of the story and the journey you've been on, and then we can get into the topics. Well, I started my career in finance as an M and A banker with J P Morgan, and made my way to a venture capital firm after business school, and that got me enamored with entrepreneurship. And I thought, you know what? This is what really makes America so amazing, is that people are willing to take these risks to go out. They see a, an opportunity in the market, and they're going to take take all the risks they can. And if it works, they're going to make a ton of money. And if it fails, they're going to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and keep yeah. going. So I decided to leave the VC firm and start my first my first tech startup. And it failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I made the classic mistake of uh, funding it myself. Do not do that. <laughs> Lesson number one. <laughs> Lesson number one. And you know, look, it it was it was a kick in the teeth. Yeah. And for us, you know, I didn't get out of bed for a few days after it it fell apart. Didn't leave the apartment, but you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you keep going. And importantly, you ask for help. Yeah. Right. Whenever. Uh, whenever you need it, because as, as entrepreneurs, as founders, we like to think we can do it all, but we can't and we shouldn't. The next, uh, the next company was more successful. Um, it was a sharing content sharing platform that eventually got sold to Salesforce, which was a good outcome. And the most recent company is a company called WorkMarket, which is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelance populations. And we raised about $100 million from Union Square Ventures, SoftBank, and a few others. And we sold the company in 2018 to ADP. I had the pleasure of serving on the uh, senior leadership team of ADP for uh, a couple years. And then uh, as my lockup ended, I am now thinking about my next and potentially potentially last startup. Yeah. 
Yeah. Less is always famous, less words. <laughs> <laughs> so given this kind of topic of the nature of work, the future of work, mm-hmm. like when did this start to become kind of an area of interest and ever expertise for you? Give us a little bit of the uh, unveiling for you and how, how it came to fruition. Well, I'll tell you this. When we were building work market, this notion of labor force transformation and people using more freelancers, more on-demand labor, more gig workers, we were hot. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, my God, this is the future and CNBC did a story and blah, 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 blah. So I got to speak at all these conferences about the future of work. Super fun. Loved it. But I also had the opportunity to listen to other people speak Mm -hmm. and to hear what they were thinking about the future of work. And in some cases, it was amazing and I learned a ton. In other cases, it was really frustrating because a lot of people should not be talking. (laughs) And... I would sit there either on panels with them or in the audience and just be like, "What? Where are you? Where is this prediction coming from? That is that is zero percent chance of coming true. Yeah. How come? Who's allowing this person to speak?" Uh-huh. And so I got I got very frustrated, and so I started to put pen to paper and say, "Look, if you're going to be out in the public square, if you're going to be talking and making predictions, predictions that." individuals and families and companies are relying upon Mm -hmm. as they think about their future, you have an obligation to use the evidence available to us in the world of work. And that evidence is the history of work. It is certainly the data around the world of work. And it includes how companies actually engage workers. Mm -hmm. This idea that companies are going to go 100% on demand. No, no, they won't. Like Full stop. Will some? Sure, every now and again on the margins. But will companies writ large? No. Hard stop. Not going to happen. And so those are the kinds of things that I tried to put forward in this book, The End of Jobs, is how do we make thoughtful predictions? And look, they're still predictions, man. I mean, yeah. you know, some are going to come true, some are not. Some are going to be completely off, some are going to be spot on. So there are going to be some things we don't even think about at all. But they have a high probability of being true because we're using history and how companies and workers have come together in the face of huge technological change. We're using all of the data available to us and we're actually having the conversations with the people shaping the future of work, these CHROs and C-suites that are hiring and transforming their labor forces. And if we use all of that, then we have a high probability of being accurate. Yeah. And I guess what data did you go to or research did you go to, right? Because this is, you know, it's not like this is a new topic, right? I mean, people have been mm-hmm. looking at labor markets and workforce analysis and stuff like that for, you know, decades, if not centuries. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the whole idea of predicting the future of work is, is not necessarily a new topic. But what, what were the kind of the important pieces that you pulled together to really kind of help inform yourself? Well, first is I'll give you a little story that happened just, just the other day. I was on a panel and, you know, a thought leader for those that I, I just air quoted because you know we're, we're just doing audio <laughs> exactly. here thought leader I was on a panel with this th- big thought leader and he said well look 50% of the US workforce is going to work remote post pandemic and people were like oh and I was like I'm sorry I, I have to interrupt here uh, how do you juxtapose that with the fact that only 42% of the US workforce can work remotely because yeah. you know people in manufacturing and serving and he looked and he goes oh I, I didn't know that I was like well, shouldn't you know that though <laughs> I mean shouldn't you know because yeah. so the point being is that the data it's not like obscure data sets out there yeah. you know th- this is very these are it, it just takes a second to go and do this but that being said the bureau of labor statistics is such a gift they are by far then for those that don't know it's the department of labor's uh, statistical arm 
They do an amazing, amazing job. Our friends at the World Economic Forum, I think, are fantastic. I will tell you, if you're going to read one thing on the future of work, well, actually, if you're going to read one thing, you should read my book. <laughs> read book <yeah. laughs> if you're going to read two things, though, the you, second should thing read you should read <laughs> the World Economic Forum's uh, studies. They're the smartest people in the room. I have the pleasure of, of working with them from time to time, and unbelievable. Yeah. McKinsey and the McKinsey Global Institute does an amazing, amazing job. You should be looking at that stuff every time they put things out. And our friends at the ADP Research Institute, I will tell you, I loved every moment I had at ADP. Mm -hmm. And one of the most powerful and underappreciated things about ADP, and there are a lot of underappreciated things, it's an amazing company, is that research institute. They have access to more data on HR than any place on the planet. It's not not even remotely close. The the Bureau of Labor Statistics goes to them to understand what's going on in the world. And so working with uh, Ahu, who runs the labor, the uh, the research institute, that was was such a gift. There, she's she's just an amazing, amazing woman. Yeah. And so as you you know looked at the data, what are the big forces at play, right? I mean, you mentioned you know that the nature of a lot of these you know jobs are not remote workable, right? Like I mean, you know, manufacturing mm-hmm. and stuff. So so what else do you look at when you're kind of in that where might this go kind of question? What are the factors that come into play or, or what are the forces that you're looking at in terms of what might shape the future? So there are a few big areas. One is the on-demand labor force. For those that don't know the term, the on-demand mm-hmm. labor force are just people that do work for you that aren't on your payroll. So they're mm-hmm. a temp or they're a freelancer, maybe they're a vendor. Mm-hmm. And we have limited amounts of data on the on-demand labor force. But we'll dive into that in a second. The the next is remote work. And definitions, shockingly, are very important here. Because remote workers are defined as people whose tax nexus is not that office, meaning more than 50% of the time they don't go to the office. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the office three days a week, you're not a remote worker. You're what's known as a flexible worker. Mm -hmm. And so understanding those differences. And then last (laughs) and the most important, as we think about the history of work, and the technological changes we've gone through, electrification, mechanization, and computerization, the three big shifts, or three industrial revolutions, to use the term, is how are the robots and AI going to start displacing jobs? Which jobs? Where and when? Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of work that needs to be done because what people tend to do, to your point earlier, is just draw these simple conclusions and just start saying, oh my God, all the jobs are going to go, everyone should freak out. You're like, mm, no, yeah. that's not how it happens. Yeah. Well, and, and we've had, you know, cases of this in the past. I mean, I, I know you've mentioned a few of, you know, where technology has, you know, it, it disrupted mm-hmm. a, a particular kind of role function inside of an industry and, and everything's had to a, adjust and, and, it, and it has and it wasn't mm-hmm. the end of the world. Can you give us some examples of things that you've looked uh, in terms of models? That- of course. Again, just our, our three big movements here, on-demand labor, remote work, and automation, let's call it. So within automation, my favorite example is the ATM. And it's my favorite example because it doesn't disguise what it's trying to be, Yeah. right? It's called an automated teller machine. Uh-huh. I'm a machine that's trying to automate the job of the teller. <laughs> yeah. And in 1995 is when the ATM appeared in every bank branch in the United States. In 1995, there were 500,000 bank tellers employed in the United States. And what do you think, Bruce? Every single person that was a quote-unquote thought leader was saying about employment as bank tellers going forward. Yeah. End of end of it. They're all going to oh be on the God. street, like shaking tin cans, looking for money. <laughs> right. You know, you're going to walk into a bank, there are going to be no people. It's all automated. Yeah. No. No, 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 no. We fast forward, you know, 25 years, and we find bank teller employment increased 20%. Uh-huh. There are 600,000 people employed as bank tellers in the United States. 
And so people go, oh, no, why, why, why? Look, here's the why, is the function of bank teller is not 100% what we would call a repetitive high-volume task. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very important word in the world of work because repetitive high-volume tasks get automated away. A good percent of the component tasks of being a bank teller are repetitive high-volume tasks, taking in money, giving out money, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not 100%. And if it's not 100%, there is actually a very complex formula that tells us, based on the percent of component tasks that are repetitive high-volume tasks, how many people get displaced, and there are a lot of variables in that formula. Now, with bank tellers, about half of their job is repetitive high-volume tasks. So customer service interactions aside, because that's this huge impact that people don't think about, Mm -hmm. you'd expect about half of bank teller jobs to go. And strangely, that is actually what happened, because the average number of tellers per branch went from 21 to 13. But the number of bank branches almost doubled. And that's what happens, is that People don't think about economic growth and its impact on jobs. People don't think about regulation because the reason bank branches proliferated was because of banking deregulation that happened in the late 1990s. Yeah. Right? And that had the biggest impact on the world of work. And we think about how the job function of the bank teller was going to play out. And so you need to think about all that. And back to our point on customer service, look, if I walk into a Chase bank and there's no one there to greet me and give me a lollipop and there's just a bunch of machines and they're like, oh, there's a machine there, do your business. But I walk into Citibank and they give me a lollipop and they ask Mm -hmm. how I'm doing and they ask if I want to talk to an investment professional about a mortgage or an investment product. I'm going back to Citibank, not just because I like lollipops, but like that's my (laughs) consumer interaction. And so consumer interactions, regulation, the shoulder technologies, the technology itself, its deployment, all of these things go into what happens to the people employed in that function, not just, oh, this tech exists, that function goes. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the way that I've always seen this or the I think the thing that I keep in mind is we're looking kind of business models and you know automating certain functions is it just frees up people to do a lot more of these, you know, more complicated high value tasks. And actually mm-hmm. just increase the level of service, right? So, yes, I, I'm going to take, you know, half of what all these tellers were doing before in terms of, you know, depositing checks and issuing, you know, um, withdrawing cash and things like that. We're going to move that to an ATM. Well, now I can use that 50% capacity and, and start, you know, providing higher level service, spending more time with customers, you know, having better interaction, right? Create, you know, I'm not rushing people Completely. through. The, right. So it, just because I'm removing a whole bunch of work doesn't mean there isn't a whole bunch of other work that they can be doing. Many of those tellers came out from behind the bulletproof glass. They yes. had iPads. They were greeting you at the door. What's your name? Oh, we know this about like, and they're yeah. doing exactly what you said. They're yeah. doing that customer service, those higher value added tasks. Yeah, yeah, and of course now they're behind the glass again, but <laughs> for different reasons. <laughs> for different reasons. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I'm curious. You know, given given the fact that we've now, you know, we're we're coming up on, or I guess we're just over a year of being in this pandemic. Is there anything that that I mean, it's an interesting just kind of experiment or a you know situation to go through where there's foundational sh- you know seismic shifts in yeah. how people have been working. Is there anything about what you were kind of thinking about pre-pandemic in terms of how things were going to play out? that either the pandemic has accelerated or the pandemic has stressed in different ways? Or I guess, mm-hmm. what have you learned being you know, someone that's looking at the nature of work? Well, I'll tell you this. The most clear example of the future of work being accelerated is remote work. And let's we'll dive into that in a second. But I think it's important to understand the historic context in which this occurs and then what we'll call the snapback. And so, look, there's been a clear acceleration of the concentration of certain companies' economic sure. power. There's been acceleration of deglobalization, the decoupling of different economies from each other. There's been a clear acceleration in 
the usage of on-demand labor. There's been an acceleration in the employment of automation technologies. But the question becomes, oh, and then digital payments and uh, digital work and digital commerce and a host of things. But what happens with the snapback, right? You have this tech acceleration, Mm -hmm. but then you often see a snapback because people are getting vaccinated. We're going to get back into the office actually surprisingly soon, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And what happens then? And so when people say, oh, you know, we need to look at this, you got to remember a lot of these trends don't move in these straight, smooth lines, especially in the historic concept of a big dislocation. Mm -hmm. There are big, jagged, V-shaped type things and sometimes W-shaped type things in those lines. And people make the mistake of saying, oh, well, we're all going to clearly continue that trend. Maybe. Now, remote work. Here's what we know about remote work. And surprising nobody, I'm going to start with some history and some data. Mm Mm-hmm. One and a half percent of the U.S. workforce worked remotely, remembering our definition of remote work. Fifty percent of the time, not in that office. Fifty percent and more. Over the 2010 to 2020 period, it grew by 100 percent. We got to three percent of the U.S. workforce working remotely post-pre-pandemic. And the biggest impediments to more remote work were antiquated mindsets and infrastructure policies and procedures. The antiquated mindsets, Bruce, are just this notion that yeah. we all know the manager that says, look, I know all the studies say the remote workers are happier, healthier, they're more engaged, they're yeah. they more higher retention, and yeah. blah, 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 blah. But I think that productivity equals presence. I think yeah. magic happens when people are in the office. We all know that person. I want to see you at your desk. Yeah, yeah, it's inane. It is literally inane. And infrastructure policies and procedures, it's one thing for us to say, oh, well, Jeff can work remotely. It's another to make sure Jeff can have access to all the company's systems outside the company's four walls. It's another thing to make a remote option a default for every single meeting, not, oh, Jeff's in this meeting, he works remote sometimes, let's make sure we put in a remote option because Jeff's going to slip through the cracks. So all of those things were impediments. And pre-pandemic, we would have said, we meaning those that spend their free hours studying labor statistics, <laughs> would have said that the 3% would have probably slowed in its growth rate and made it to 4%, maybe 5 over the next 10 years. But the pandemic obviously forced a change of mindset and forced companies to put in place the infrastructure policies and procedures. This is one where you can't put the genie back in the bottle. There'll be a snapback. We mm-hmm. clearly will not get to the 40% which we were at at the peak of the pandemic, 40% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. Yeah, That's not going to happen. But we are also not going to go back to 3%. I would say, when we look at all of the job functions, what different companies are saying, what managers are saying, what employers are saying, that we're going to end up at about 8% at the U.S. workforce working remotely. Again, remember, more than 50% of the time. And about 33% will be people working in a flexible environment. Meaning three days a week, maybe four days a week, maybe one month, one week out of the month, I'm going to work remotely. That will become the predominant context in which people work is a flexible work environment. Yeah. Do you see it? Is there any, um, I guess, industries or types of roles that are going to be more likely to be this kind of flexible situation? I mean, I'm kind of curious to see how this, you know, is going to shake out by industry, by economic sort of status, class, employment level, you know, managerial versus frontline worker. I mean, I mean, obviously, retail folks, restaurants and stuff, they're not going to be able to do some of these things, right? You know, they're more. Not. Yeah. They're so not. how do you think that's going to shake out? Well, look, you have a very large percent of the workforce that we would call kind of white collar or computer based office work. That actually makes up about 31% of the U.S. labor force. Okay. And so those types of workers have a high propensity to be able to work remotely. When you think about people in leisure and travel, people that are in on-site customer interactions, like retail and things like that, 
people that are in medical care or transportation, they can't work remotely. Yeah. And so what's going to become interesting when we think about labor statistics is what we'll call the denominator effect, which is it is possible that because of the increased usage of digital commerce, of online ordering, that we don't snap back to as many restaurant workers and retail workers and things like that, meaning the U.S. labor force will have structurally shrunk in those regards. But those people may well be repurposed into production and warehousing. I mean, the goods still need to get shipped and transportation and logistics to do more last-mile delivery and things like that. I don't know. Nobody knows, right? We have an inkling that we may see some sort of structural shift there, but this is what I was talking about in regards to that snapback. We we yeah. just don't know yet. Yeah. And have, have you uh, identified or has there been any work researched on on the secondary effects? I mean, I've, like I've seen some things, mm-hmm. you know, just with, with people's kind of investment in real estate and, mm-hmm. you, know, the, the, you know, where they're going to live. I'm in the New York area and obviously there's been a lot of shifts in, you know, property values and, you know, mm-hmm. where the demand is and, you know, both rental and, and home buying has been really kind of shaken up by this. As you look at the shift of the nature of work, what other kind of impacts is it going to have on us, you know, from a society and from an economy? So the important question that we are kind of studying is how many people are going to go fully remote? And then if you go fully remote, meaning you don't ever come to the office, which is not the 8%, by the way, the 8% is less than 50% of the time they come to the office, but they still come, Yeah, right? 90% of remote workers pre-pandemic live within a commutable distance of the office. They just didn't go there very often. Yeah, they always had and the so, option. They just chose not to exercise it. Yeah, and every now and again, it was, no, 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 I, everyone needs to come in. We need to have that big team meeting. Like, I want everybody here. And, and that's a reasonable request every now and again from a manager. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a big brainstorming session. I don't know how many of your listeners have tried a brainstorming session over Zoom. <laughs> it ain't that effective. Yeah, It's just not. Yeah. Like, you need to be in the same room. You need to be debating and discussing and walking around and ripping up ripe whiteboards and all that other stuff. So every now and again, it's fine. The question becomes, how many then go completely remote? And when we move in that direction, because very, very few were completely remote. And if you break that bone and go completely remote, then how far afield can you go? Can you just go and work in Idaho, Mm -hmm. even though your company's based in New York City? Maybe, maybe. And those kinds of trends and impacts are going to be unbelievably disruptive to the way we've set up this urban and then suburban structure. But I I think, and this is still a think right now, because yep. I don't have any data yet, I think that that is going to be much ado about nothing. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see that. I think any, you would bet, historically, you would bet against cities to your peril. No one ever wins that bet. Cities always continue to grow, yeah. and the reasons for being there are, are, are manyfold. But it's important to also remember that people are doing remote work and flexible work in the construct of a pandemic, right? And yeah. so companies that say, oh, well, we're not that productive, and I have the pleasure of advising a lot of companies on this, one of the largest banks on the planet, it's like, oh my God, we got to get our people back. We're so not productive. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you should get some of your people back. But let's remember that people are working in the context of a pandemic. They're also being childcare oh, yeah, and exactly. teachers, and they have no social outlet. And so there's a lot of depression and loneliness and stuff like that mm-hmm. going on. And so let's see how they're productive outside of the pandemic, which, God willing, is coming very soon. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm curious a bit, you know, given given your kind of entrepreneurial background and now this focus on work and and not tip your hand on anything that you may be <laughs> starting after this, but like where would you where would you focus on innovation if you're starting a new company, if you're, you know, looking to be a kind of cutting edge and, you know, change is difficult, but it's also full of opportunities. Like where would you focus? Where would you advise people to really kind of come up with new ideas around? such a great question. And if I had a really good answer, I'd be a much better investor and a much better <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> but unfortunately, I am neither. Look, I will tell you where I mostly invest is is in people I know and, and people I've worked with. <laughs> and so there are, I think at this point, 22 companies that have come out of work market and either my last company and either I or a fund that I'm an LP in has invested in every single one, mm-hmm. save one. And so that to me is always very important because it is people that are experts in their field that are going to be able to uncover these things. Now, look, that that's kind of my kind of bullshit answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> and my more focused answer would be, I think that we're at the very early stages of, of, of different data plays. Yeah. And I've had the pleasure of meeting some wonderful entrepreneurs that I've known over the years that I think are doing amazing things with data and helping to uncover optimal choices for the consumer. Because as a consumer, you know, and I think about this company, Naya, which is in the benefit space. Mm -hmm. How many of your listeners, how many, you know, you or I, like as you look at the different benefit plan uh, choices that you're given, I I don't have no idea. Do you want this? (laughs) I I consider myself a pretty smart guy and I've always just been like flummoxed on how to actually make the decision on these things. Yeah. Yeah. I look at it. I'm like, I I don't know. I guess I'll do this one. It's the most expensive. So perhaps I'll take the one in the middle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, Naya is this amazing data model and then Uh this great user interface that helps a employee understand, well, actually, this is the best plan for you Mm -hmm. given where you are. And they are killing it just killing it right now. Yeah. And I think about retraining. And I'll, I'll spend a second on this because when we look at historically the first three industrial revolutions, we always end up better, Bruce, every time. The almost uninterrupted trend from the history of work is more jobs, people working fewer hours in order to achieve a higher standard of living. Those are almost uninterrupted trends over the last 200 years of human work as we have moved into this notion of companies and workers. Mm-hmm. But what people leave out in that journey. And they say, oh, the fourth industrial revolution now with robots and AI, we're going to end up much better. Yeah, that's probably true. But there's going to be a shit show transition period, as there always has been. And in some of these transition periods in past industrial revolutions, there's literally blood in the streets. Mm -hmm. And this is time of revolution. And the reason for that is that people get automated away because they are in these repetitive high-volume tasks, almost always in the previous industrial revolutions in a manufacturing context, but this next one more in a service context. Mm Mm-hmm. And as societies, we have done a terrible job of helping them move to the industries and the functions, in some cases the geographies, that are growing. And we do that to our peril. We leave them behind to our peril. And so when I think about the big challenge in regards to the robots and AI, and I go into this very heavily in the book, there will be no net job losses over the next 20 years. The important word there, though, is not the no job losses. It's the net There will be more jobs created than we lose, but we need to move people into those jobs. And if we don't do it effectively and historically, we have not. We are in for a very difficult transition period. And so there are a lot of companies out there right now doing tremendous work. This company Transfer VR, you put on a VR headset and you can be retrained in 90, 10% of the time that it used to take to get retrained. 
doing amazing, amazing stuff, and they are this big hope. And the last plug I'll give here is for the X Prize, and I have the pleasure of serving as an advisor to the X Prize. They've got a pro uh, a prize going on right now called the Rapid Reskilling Program. Yeah. Like, how do we help with new technologies and new processes to reskill workers? And move them from the industries and the functions that are dying to the industries and the functions that are growing. And I'm so excited to see how uh, that XPRIZE plays out. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I think that whole idea of an individual, a teams, an organizations, a society's you know ability to change you know, mm-hmm. ends up becoming kind of the gating factor to you know ultimate success, right? Because it's that things are going to change, right? And, and can you adapt to it? Can you adapt to it well? Can you adapt to it you know quickly? Mm-hmm. You know, is really is going to determine how successful you are or how painful the process is. Uh. And individuals do change poorly. Companies do it even worse, and societies do it straight up terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, hopefully, hopefully, there's some work to be done, and and uh, some ways that we can help. And but yeah, it's, I think it's a it's a, just a fascinating time that we're in, and and the shifts that we're going to see over the next decade, two decades, it's going to be quite interesting. And will impact the services industry Absolutely. much more Absolutely. than the previous industrial revolutions. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the book, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? You know, you will be the first place that I, I mentioned this, but I, after owning jeffwall.com since the beginning of the internet, it was, I think, my first internet-based purchase. I purchased jeffwall.com, and it sat there for, you know, 20-plus years. I have finally uh, put up uh, all the content on the books I've written and articles I've written, and so uh, you can find uh, all the information on the, uh, the end of jobs on uh, jeffwald.com. Great. I'll make sure that the link is in the show notes here so people can get that. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.